I was in San Diego last week, not on vacation, but at a meeting of what's called the Society of Biblical Literature and the American the Association Academy of Religion, AAR. It's 8,000 teachers of theology and religion all gathered into one place, and it is a roller coaster ride of excitement. I can tell you that. It's amazing. We were staying on the 19th floor, and we could see down there was a pool on the 15th floor. Can you imagine how deep that is? So I was going to one of the conferences, one of the events at the conference, and they were in all different hotels. And I was leaving one place to go to the other and walking in between sessions and a a really pretty girl like in her early 20s saw me and said hey you are looking really good today all dressed up do you have a few minutes don't laugh yet (laughs) I know that when a young pretty girl tells me that I'm looking good, one of two things is going on. Either she is trying to sell me something or she's trying to get me to join a cult, neither of which I wanted at, at that time. Let's face it, I know what I look like. I'm just a tiny, tiny bit above a bridge troll. I know that. And I knew that she was just saying that to try and snare me into some timeshare scam or something. So I didn't stop. Now I kind of wish I did, so I would have known what she was selling, but I didn't. And the interesting thing that today's passage of Scripture is about another big lie, a bigger lie, actually, a lie that has impacted all of us. A lie bigger than any of the lies that we tell each other or that we tell ourselves. And it's found in the book of Genesis in the third chapter. Remember in the first two chapters there's the story of Adam and Eve and their creation. And in the third chapter there is the story of the fall and the exile of Adam and Eve. They are put into a garden, and they are, they are put there for a particular reason. God tells them why they are put there. And so let's read together. We'll, we'll look at the whole third chapter together, but let's read together starting in verse 10, and we'll read along. So Genesis 3, chapter 10, and God said... I heard you in the garden. Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then then he asked, God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit, and so I ate. And so the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, so I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. 
I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. I will, you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is the first section of the story, the great story of the Bible. Fall and redemption. Exile and redemption. If someone were to ask you what the Bible is all about in two words, well, three words, exile and redemption. I forgot the and. Exile and redemption. That's what the Bible is really all about. And here we see what's going on and what's happening is that Adam and Eve, because of what they have done, are being exiled out of the garden. And they are doing it because they failed to trust God. And so every person who's here today, every one of us who's here, should trust God and always trust God and trust God alone when we are faced with difficulty. Because we must remember that God sometimes may take his time, but he always keeps his promises. There are three things that are happening in this chapter three that you can take home with you today and remember, remind yourself to trust God irregardless or regardless of what's happening in your life. The first is that we should trust God despite the temptation. The first five verses are about the temptation. This serpent comes up to Eve. Now you'll notice that the text doesn't say that the serpent was Satan. We we implant we in, infer that from the text. And early rabbinic literature calls the serpent Satan. The writer of John, the Apocalypse of John, a writer of Revelation, says that this was Satan. And some uh, intertestamental literature from the Second Temple, from Second Temple Judaism, says that the snake was Satan. There's a book called The Life of Adam and Eve, and it it tells more about what went on here. It was written probably not long before Christ, and it tries to tell the story much more fully of what happened to Adam and Eve. In all those places, they say that the serpent was Satan. So we all should remember that we trust God despite temptation. Eve listened to what the serpent said to her. Now, I don't know how they talked. It doesn't say, the text doesn't say how a, a snake and a person were able to talk. Maybe at that time all animals could talk. I'm hoping that's the case. In the new heaven and the new earth, I'm hoping all animals can talk because I got some things I'd like to talk over with my dog. But we don't know for sure. We don't know how the serpent got around, whether he walked or what. The text doesn't say it. 
It just says that the serpent is cursed and he has to go on his belly. And in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, it it becomes even more clear. It says that you will go on the your whole your whole bottom of your body will be in the ground and you will eat dirt forever. And that's what had happened was that Eve decided to listen to this serpent who came up to her. And God had placed them in this garden, and in the garden they had everything that they needed. Nothing that they needed was outside of that garden. There was only one thing that God had told them not to do. Don't eat from this one tree. Just one little tiny tree. Just that one tree, don't eat from that. And so the, the evil serpent comes up to Eve and he says to her, what's going on here? Why won't God let you eat from that tree? And Eve begins to listen. Eve begins to, to look and see that that's the tree that she can't eat from. There's this sense in which she wants exactly what she can't have and what she shouldn't have and what's not really good for her. And she wants that because that's what the evil one does. He comes to us and he says, you really need a little bit more. Rarely do people sort of fall apart all at once. Usually, they fall apart a little bit at a time. And Satan didn't just come in and say, do exactly what God told you not to. He questioned Eve and he said to her, did God really say you can't eat of that fruit? What kind of a God is that? That's the kind of God who doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because then you'll be like him. He's trying to keep something from you. He's trying to keep you from being like him. He wants you not to know what he knows. And so he's kept you from eating that one fruit. And Eve listens to what he says. And she takes a piece of that fruit and eats it. The Hebrew grammar of this third chapter of Genesis seems to indicate in, in, in the words that the serpent says that he's talking to two people. So Adam was there and both intertestamental literature, rabbinic literature, and the New Testament all indicate that Eve was deceived, but that Adam knew exactly what he was doing and he did it anyway. He knew better. And you can imagine having everything that you could ever want or need and just being told, don't eat of that one tree, and yet it gnawed away at them. They just had to see what that one tree was like. I don't know if you've ever read the book Men at Work by uh, George Will. It's, It's an older book about great baseball players. He takes four different great players and asks them what's different about the way that they play the game. And one of the players that he takes is uh, Oral Hershiser, a former pitcher for the Dodgers. And he says, what's different about the way that you pitch from the way that hundreds of other people pitch that allow you to, to, to be so successful? And Oral Hershiser says, most pitchers try to fool the batter by throwing what they don't expect. 
If the batter expects a high pitch, they throw a low one. But I, on the other hand, I throw what they do expect, just a little different. In other words, he said, what I do is if they're expecting a high pitch, they want a high pitch up in the strike zone, I'll throw it, but I'll throw it up a little higher than it should be, a little higher than they can hit it. And yet it's up there in the strike zone just where they wanted it, and so they'll swing at it anyway. That really is what Satan does to any of us. He doesn't come to us and say, destroy your life by doing these things. He comes to us and says, what kind of a God would do the things that the Bible says he does? What kind of a God would give you all these uh, these trees and yet say to the one, don't touch or eat this tree? Because that's what Eve said. Eve said he told us not to eat the tree or to touch it. But God hadn't told them not to touch it. Eve is worrying in her mind about what's going on and wrestling around with what she's supposed to do. And so finally she does. She takes it and she eats it. We must learn from that that we should trust God during temptation. But there's a second thing that we should learn. And that is that we should trust God during tragedy. This is a tragic event. All of history can be traced back to this event when Adam and Eve took that fruit and did exactly what God told them not to do. And that tragedy came because of a direct and deliberate choice made by Adam and Eve. Tragedy brings with it awful consequences. And we should realize that not every single person who has problems in their life have them as a direct result of sin. I want you to realize that not everybody who is sick or who has pain or who has problems in their life, it never is there a one-to-one correlation between the way that they act and whatever happens to them. There are many who are sick who are not doing wrong. God is showing them in some other way. But tragedy not only comes because of this personal sin, it brings with it terrible memories. Augustine or Augustine, whichever, however you want to pronounce it, it he said this, Augustine, you remember, wrote the book, The Confessions, and it's essentially a really long prayer. And it, it, it's sort of an autobiography. Many people think that Augustine invented the, the autobiography in the Confessions. And he says in it about his youth, he says, So small a boy, yet so great a sinner. And it's, it's that pain that Augustine felt because he had done those things that are wrong, that God wants us to know that we have done things that are wrong and that's the reason that the world is broken. Tragedy brings with it terrible memories of what we have done, those consequences. But tragedy often brings with it a a sort of a, a terrible ignorance, a denial of what sin really is and what it does and how broken the world is. 
There are certain groups of people, certain groups of religion who will say that there's nothing wrong with the world, that everything is okay. But every time that we drive past a hospital or a cemetery, we realize that the world is broken, that there's something wrong with it, that it's not just some person in power trying to tell you that something's broken, that it really is. You might rem remember the name uh, Rod Serling. Uh, he was the uh, host and writer of most of the, the Twilight Zone, the very first Twilight Zones, the best ones. And in the 80s, there was, this, there was a magazine called The Twilight Zone. I still have them at home. And in a collection and 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 in there they would generally have something some writing of Rod Serling often they would have an entire script of the Twilight Zone there would be other kinds of fantasy writing but then there would be some some unpublished writing from Rod Serling and what was interesting to me was one I remember reading one time Serling talking about Augustine and he said St. Augustine had a mental problem. He said there was something really wrong with him and it's impacted all of us and it's caused all of us to feel the same kind of <clears throat> Puritan guilt that he felt. Well, Augustine was long before the Puritans, but we'll let it, that go. He says Augustine felt so bad about himself for nothing more than stealing a few pears off of a tree. And I went back, looked at the confessions, and I realized that, that Serling had misunderstood what Augustine was saying. Augustine didn't feel so bad because he had stolen a few pears off of a tree. He felt bad because he had stolen those pears off of a tree and didn't need them wasn't going to eat them. They went to waste. He went out and he stole those pears off of a tree for no other reason than the simple pleasure of stealing. And that is what the, the sin brings with it. It brings with it a certain denial that the world is really broken. But we can't inside deny ourselves that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with this world. This is not the way life is supposed to be. But there's a third thing that we see in this passage, a happy thing. And that is we don't always, we don't just trust God despite temptation. We don't just trust God during tragedy. But the last part of the text that we read reminds us that we trust God to deliver triumph. The 15th verse of this passage where it says that the snake shall harm his heel, but he will harm your head, is a, what is called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first mention of the gospel. It is the promise that despite the fact that Adam and Eve are going to be kicked out of the garden, they're going to be placed into exile for the rest of their lives because of what they've done. Despite the fact that they're going to be in that place, there finally will be triumph. And it's just hinted at 
a little tiny bit there. That there's coming one who will smash the head of the serpent. And that's the reason that we celebrate Advent. The reason that we celebrate Advent is because we know that we worship the one who has brought triumph. That we worship the one who has, with his death and resurrection, beaten the head of the serpent. And that while the serpent did wound his heel, he ultimately and victoriously wounded the serpent's head. We realize that though God may take his time, he always keeps his word. There's a wonderful short story. I'm sure that many of you have read it. It's called The Luck of the Roaring Camp, written by Bret Hart. Not Bret Hart the wrestler, but a different Bret Hart. And it's the story of this gold rush mining camp. And there are a bunch of men there who go down into the mine every day. They're rough and tumble. They're gamblers. They get in fights. They shoot at each other. All of them are broken in some way. The leader of the group is called Stumpy because he's lost part of his leg. The, the champion arm wrestler has only one arm. Their best shot has only three fingers. And there's a woman there, only one woman, her name is Cherokee Sal, and she is what we might call a woman of negotiable affections. And she is pregnant. And in the story, she has this child and she dies during childbirth. And all of these rough miners are left there with a little tiny baby and no idea what they should do with it. And so at first, they, they say to themselves, well, we've got to stop the gambling because people get into fights and it wakes the baby up. So we're, we're not having any more of this gambling. We're not going to have any more shooting. It wakes the baby up. We've got to allow the baby to sleep whenever it needs to. I don't know much about taking care of babies, but letting them sleep is one of the things. It was a rough place. They didn't know anything about raising babies, but they, they got some wood and formed together this small cradle, fixed it so it would rock. They were able to get milk from a cow that was there, did the best they could to feed the child and to clothe the child and to put some of their clothes into the cradle that they had made so that the child could live. And then they noticed that the child was waking up very early and they realized it was because the sun was coming through the one window in the cabin. And they said, we got to put a curtain up there. Can't have the baby waking up so early. We need a, a curtain. And let's let's clean up the place a little. I mean, this is a baby. We don't want it to grow up in a pigsty. So they swept up and, and cleaned up. And then whenever they would go every day to the mine and go down in there to get their gold, they would take a blanket and lay it out on the ground and allow the baby to play outdoors while they were working. The baby's name was Luck. That's the reason the story is called The Luck of the Roaring Camp. And one day someone who hadn't been to the camp in a long time, they came to deliver supplies. And they were shocked. 
They said, what is this? You guys aren't gambling anymore. I don't see one person that's drunk. And you've got curtains up. What is going on? And Stumpy, a little bit embarrassed, said, well, everything changed when the baby came. And that, you see, is what we celebrate every year at Advent. We celebrate the fact that we are not in a broken world forever, but that we are promised that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We are promised triumph. We are promised that because the baby came and grew up and gave his life to pay for all our sin. We can't pay it ourselves. It's too much. But God sent his own son as a little child to come and become our own Savior. And so I hope that with every Christmas song you sing, with every Advent light that you string up, that that will remind you that when you are faced with difficulty, you should trust God alone. Because God may take his time, but he always keeps his promises.